we are in a, uh, in a study uh, of the gospel of, of Mark. You can turn to chapter 3. That's where we're going to, uh, to be. But, but, but as you're turning, let me review exactly um, where we are. And specifically, I want to ask and answer the question, exactly what was it that was getting Jesus into trouble? Will you think about that with me for just a moment? Uh, so far in our study of Mark, he, he came preaching good news, what Mark calls the, calls the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus came preaching that the kingdom of God is actually here, that it's available, that it's among you. All you need to do is repent and, and believe in the gospel. This good news would culminate in his death and resurrection for sinners. The key teaching of the gospel is that bad people can actually know the joy of a right, uh, restored relationship with God. They can actually know the peace of sins um, forgiven. So let me ask you a question. Is that, is that something to oppose? Why would, why would people have a problem with, with that? And yet, as you stop to think about it, within the truth of the gospel itself, it, it's offensive. You see, we begin the gospel, the truth of the gospel with that truth that we need to repent. And, and people don't generally like that. They don't like to be told that they're bad. They don't like to be told that there's nothing that they can do to improve their condition. The, the gospel is good news, but it must begin with bad news, and, and people don't like that. Jesus went on from there. He actually began to um, deliver people. <laughs> he, he began to relieve people of that brokenness in which they found themselves. He started at least in Mark's gospel by delivering a, a demon-possessed man. I mean, sure, it was on the Sabbath, but, well, we found the demon started it, knowing who Jesus was, he began publicly opposing him, and so Jesus drove the demon out. Who would have a problem with that? That very evening, he began healing many people of various kinds of sickness and, and again, driving out demons. People were coming to him from, from all over Capernaum and, and finding healing and deliverance that they had not known for a very long time, in some cases ever. All who left him left restored. Is that a is that a problem? Why would anybody oppose that? He began then a Galilee-wide preaching, healing, and deliverance tour. I mean, good news, the kingdom of God is among you. It's available to all who again repent, who turn from their sin and believe. And as proof that the kingdom is here, he began... Well, we read it again in chapter 1. He began casting out demons. This seems to be a theme running through the first chapter of Mark. The evil kingdom of Satan was under siege. Isn't that a good thing? Who would oppose that? At the end of chapter 1, Jesus actually healed a man of that very dreaded disease of leprosy, uh, the, the most dreaded of all diseases. Sure, in, in mercy, he reached out and touched the man, but incredibly, instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the man became clean. Who would have a problem with that? You see, then we got to chapter 2. 
And Mark began five stories in a row where Jesus would continue to teach with authority. He would continue to heal, and, and we will begin to see rising opposition. Now, to be sure, Mark was proving that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and he was telling, doing this by telling this, the stories of what Jesus actually did because, you see, Jesus himself was proving that he had authority in his teaching. His authority was seen over the dem- demonic realm. It was seen over sickness and, and sin and, and the Sabbath and ultimately death, you see, because Jesus is proving that, yes, he was indeed the Son of God. And, and he does so in ways that people don't like. It raises the ire of, of the people. A group of people that you would never expect, the religious establishment. Which begs the question, again, why would religious people oppose, why would religious people oppose exorcisms and, and healing and, and forgiveness? Why would they oppose the Son of God? Because he messed with our system. It's the same reason that people oppose Jesus today. It's the same reason we actually have world religions today. Many do not like the way that God offers reconciliation, so they say, I will come up with my own way. I will do it my own way. It's been that way since the beginning. I will do it my way. And God says, no, you won't. I'll, I'll do, we'll do it our own way. We'll create our own systems, and in the process, we'll oppose this Jesus as the exclusive way to God. We'll oppose His person. We will oppose His teaching. We will oppose His work, and we will oppose His followers. Don't know if you know it or not, but Christianity is under siege, always has been, and always will be. In the Middle East, you know, it is costing followers their lives. In this country, it is beginning to cost some of you, and I believe that it will continue to do so in ever-increasing measure. After all, Jesus said, if they oppose me, they will also oppose you. So it should not come as a surprise. But back to Jesus. They did oppose him. In chapter 2, these five stories begin. In the first opposition story, Jesus, as the Son of God, has he says, I have the authority to forgive sins. And he proved it by healing this paralytic forgiving him of his sins. The guy stood upright in, in front of everyone, walked out, clean both on the inside and, and on the out. Uh, who would oppose that? The religious establishment. They thought him blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God exactly? Opposition story number two. Jesus called a tax collector. A, a, a tax collector, I said, named Matthew to follow him. Matthew could not leave the tax collector's booth soon enough. Luke tells us that he left everything. Jesus then attended a a, a party in Matthew's house with Matthew's friends. What kind of friends does Matthew, the tax collector, have? Well, other tax collectors and sinners. It seems that they were eating and, and drinking, celebrating the good news of the gospel, celebrating the fact that, can you believe it? Our sins can be forgiven. Who would have a problem with sinners being forgiven, the religious establishment? You see, if for them, sinners were not welcome. This is the, 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 this is the teaching, you see, of, of 
every religion that wants to do it on our own. You, you can't come to God as a sinner. You've got to clean up your act. Jesus reminded them of this truth. He came not to call the righteous but sinners into his kingdom. And suddenly we realize as we're looking, as we're reading through this gospel of Mark, we, we begin to realize, no, well, wait just a minute. Look at the people that Jesus is calling into his kingdom. He's not calling these self-righteous people, those who don't think they need a Savior, those who think they, they're fine uh, without divine forgiveness, those who think that they are okay, that they'll make it doing it their own way. And Jesus says no. And we find him calling the broken. We find him calling those who bring nothing, those who realize that Jesus is their only hope. So far in this study, we've seen him calling formerly demon-possessed people, calling the sick, calling lepers, calling paralytics, the outcasts, the marginalized, those the religious people would never allow into their club. This is a significant difference of Christianity. Jesus came to call sinners This should be good news since we are all, in fact, sinners. And so we are beginning to realize that the the way to God is not through our self-efforts, our supposed acts of righteousness, our system, our made-up religions. The way to God is simply through the the Son of God. This is glorious news. Who Who would have a problem with that? The self-righteous, the religious are not so quick to give up their own efforts, those systems that they have created uh, to make themselves acceptable to God. Opposition story number three. The disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees, please note, again, two religious groups came to Jesus and asked Him why He and His disciples did not fast. Don't you understand spiritual people fast? If you want to be acceptable to God, then you've got to do Emphasis on do what we do, and you've got to do it the way that we do it. And so Jesus told them, the way to God will never be found in some old, outdated, worn-out system, especially the one that you have created. I have come to bring a new wine, the truth of the new covenant. Certainly, they thought, certainly there are things that we're doing that are acceptable to God. Look, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, none was more important to the Sabbath, right? I mean, it is, after all, the longest of the Ten Commandments. And God Himself set the example by by resting on that very first seventh day. Is it that important? And then look at the way that we're doing it. And so they spent centuries writing about all the things that spiritual people did not do on the Sabbath. And Opposition story number four, Jesus and his disciples were, were walking somewhere. We're not told where. It's unimportant detail. We're not told how far. Again, not important. But they're walking somewhere on the Sabbath, that's Saturday, by the way, and the disciples began picking grain along the way. This we saw last week was not stealing. Deuteronomy chapter 23 provided f- f- for that action, but the, but the system said you can't You can't pick grain on the Sabbath. That's reaping. That's working. Never mind that you are hungry. You don't work on the Sabbath. And so Jesus blew up their categories. He reminded them of another Old Testament story where their forefather David went into the tabernacle. And when he and his men were hungry and they ate the consecrated 
bread, that, that bread that was reserved only for the priests, and yet neither David nor the priests were condemned. What do you do with that, he says? Listen, Jesus said, the man, I want you to understand, man was not made for the Sabbath. It's the other way around. The Sabbath was made for man. In your system, you see, you have switched it around. You have made this day of rest an incredible burden for the people, and you have missed the point of Sabbath altogether. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Not only was this a clear self-declaration of deity, but Jesus was implying he was the fulfillment of the Sabbath. His followers would find their ultimate rest, their eternal rest in Him. You see, the Sabbath always pointed to Jesus and the ultimate rest that He would bring. But, but the religious were not interested in that. Don't mess with my system. Don't mess with my religion. Don't tell me that my, my efforts at self-righteousness are unacceptable, unacceptable to God. I will do it my way. Opposition story number five, our text this morning, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Read that with me. He, that is Jesus, entered again into a synagogue, actually the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered, and and they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to them, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Why? Well, because the religious don't want you to mess with their system. Don't mess with the way that I want to approach God. Don't Don't mess with my world religion. And so we should not be surprised that it was the religious that ultimately conspired to have Jesus put to death. And don't be surprised when the religious conspire to oppose Christianity. Don't be surprised when the religious, in the name of their religion, oppose you. Don't be surprised when the religious, in the name of their religion, behead Christians. And I'll just make a little aside here, and I know irritate some of you, if your first response to being opposed for your faith, if your first response to radical Islam is Amendment 2, let those Muslims come and we'll greet them with my Glock, then maybe, just maybe, you don't understand the way of life for followers of Jesus. But you... You bluster the U.S. Constitution and U.S. law. Give me the right to defend myself. Good for you. Aren't you glad Jesus did not? We're going to come back to that at the end just to irritate you further. This is an incredibly intriguing story. I hope I can convey the nuances and truths found uh, within it. 
The outline of the text is quite simple. We're going to see this Sabbath setting and then the, this rather set up confrontation. And you might be in, uh, intrigued, uh, surprised at who instigate, instigates the conflict. And then we're going to see the conspiracy, the conspiracy that continues to the present day. pretty simple. Follow along as we make our way through these great verses, starting with the Sabbath setting. Now, in these five stories, I have suggested that the first two had to do with forgiving sinners. Who would have a problem with that? The religious establishment. You don't forgive sinners. The third had to do with religious observance, fasting. You do it our way or you won't do it at all. And the last two have to do with the Sabbath, because after all, the Sabbath was the pinnacle of their religious observance. It was, in fact, unique to Judaism. More is written about the Sabbath than any of the other ten commandments. Remember, we talked about this last week. There were 24 chapters in the Talmud regarding a proper Sabbath observance, namely what you could not do. I won't review everything that we talked about, but we found that the Sabbath, instead of being a day of rest, had become an onerous day of ritualistic observance. You were exhausted focusing on all you could not do on the Sabbath instead of resting in God. So Jesus took them to task, and He does so again today. He entered the synagogue. It actually reads, the synagogue. I'm not sure what my translation has it. A, the synagogue, which means it was likely the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, remember, there had already been some fireworks there. He had already wowed them. Unlike the scribes, he taught with authority. And it was in that particular synagogue that that demon confronted him. So, so no doubt, this particular crowd was there, that was there that day. They were on the edge of their seats. What is he going to do? Today, Mark adds that there was a man there with a withered hand. The word speaks of being a dried up, a, a shriveled up, or a, a stiff hand. Get in your minds the idea that it was basically a useless hand. And the wording is such, again in the Greek, the wording is such that this was not a new condition. He'd probably had it a long time, maybe even from his birth. But this man was not the only one who was there that day. Ominously, we read, they were watching Jesus. Who is they? Mark does not clearly say, but the antecedent likely points to the Pharisees. And in verse 6, we find that the Pharisees went out of the synagogue. So again, it was the religious establishment, the religious righteous who were watching him. And why were they watching? To hear more of his authoritative teaching, to, to learn more from him. Nobody teaches like this guy. To see another incredible miracle, had, had they become his followers? Hardly. They watched to see if he would heal him. They, they watched to see if they, he would heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. Some have even suggested that Jesus was set up here, that the Pharisees were the one who had brought this man to see if they could trap him, to see if Jesus would heal. You see, he just can't seem to help himself. If there's a need, he meets it. But then why would they want to see if he would heal the man? Because, because they cared about the man, because they had compassion for the man. 
because they wanted to see yet another miracle, further proving the identity of Jesus. Again, I say hardly. They were looking for a way to accuse him. There is some significant irony here. They were watching because they expected Jesus to perform a miracle. Do you hear what I just said? They were watching because they expected Jesus to perform a miracle. They were acknowledging that Jesus was doing the miraculous. They would just miss the miracle because of their system. Which brings us to the confrontation in verses 3 to 5. Now, right away, I want you to notice some, some things that happen here. The first question I, I would ask you is, did Jesus, or excuse me, did this man seek Jesus out? Did he, as is the normal pattern of things, cry out for relief, fall at Jesus' feet, beg for mercy? Did he even ask to be healed? No. This is the only miracle in Mark's gospel that Jesus initiates without being uh, approached or, or asked. Jesus singled this guy out and ordered him to come forward, meaning it was Jesus who instigated the conflict. Jesus was confronting, you see, the self-righteous Pharisees who would not lift a finger to help a broken man. They, they would have nothing to do with this man because they, they would make the assumption that his withered hand was proof of God's judgment on him. While they were seeking to accuse him, while the Pharisees were seeking to accuse Jesus, Jesus instigates this situation to accuse them. Not only that, I want you to think about this man. Put yourself in his sandals for just a moment. He did not ask for this. Again, it's even possible the Pharisees put him up to it. They brought him. Here he was, and he is ordered to stand in front of everyone. And he's going to be ordered to put his brokenness on display for everyone to see. This is probably the very last thing that he wanted to do. He didn't ask for it. He had tried to hide to compensate for his brokenness for a, a very long time, perhaps his entire life. What is it in your life? What, what brokenness do you have that you have desperately tried to keep hidden that, that, that maybe even nobody knows but you? I would say to you this morning that God knows and He stands ready to restore you. That is, after all, His specialty, but it does require stretching forth your brokenness. So the man came forward, perhaps haltingly, and Jesus asks, not him, but ask the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Stop right there a moment. Is it lawful to do good. He knew what the tradition of the elders said. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Simple question. Is it okay to do good on the Sabbath? Or he's asking the Pharisees, have you erected so many rules around the Sabbath that you can't even do good? And notice here that Jesus is implying that healing the man would be good. 
that healing the man would in fact not be a violation of the Sabbath. And further, doing nothing, in other words, not healing him, would be doing harm. In other words, for Jesus not to do good, in fact, to withhold good, as far as Jesus was concerned, would be to do evil. In this particular scenario, in order for him to be the righteous son of God, he must heal the man. To not do so would be to do harm. Now, we remember all of those chapters in the Talmud. We remember what the Mishnah said about Sabbath regulations. We talked about it last week. You could care for someone on the Sabbath if it was an emergency, if it was life or death. Additionally, they allowed for a, a couple of other things. If you were a midwife, you could do your work on the Sabbath, I suppose, because babies don't wait. <laughs> and so you can go deliver a baby. That's fine. Interestingly, circumcision uh, was allowed on the Sabbath since it was considered a, a sacred act and must be performed on the eighth day. But if you were not delivering a baby, if you were not doing a circumcision, if this was not a medical life-preserving emergency, then you don't do it. Do, do you know that the, 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 the law or the, the rules said that a doctor could not even set a broken bone on the Sabbath? You'll have to wait till tomorrow. So, Jesus says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? They knew what their traditions, they knew what their system said. They knew the answer according to their system was no, so they kept silent. They were not interested in, you see, in doing good. They were not interested in truth. They were only interested in their religious system. But Jesus went a step further. Is it lawful to save a life or to kill on the Sabbath? And you go, wait, what? What? Well, that's confusing. This man wasn't in danger of losing his life. It's a withered hand. He's had it forever. Everybody knows that. What, 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 what is Jesus asking here? What did he mean? He wasn't talking about what he was about to do. He was talking about what they were about to do in verse 6. Is it lawful on the Sabbath? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to conspire, to, to take a life, to, to kill? <laughs> you're upset about me he healing a man's hand, and you're going to make plans on a holy day to kill? He's confronting them. They remained silent after looking around at them with anger, don't miss that, grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus was angry at their sin. He was angry at their system which prevented doing good. He was angry at the sin which produced this hardness of heart, that produced this system that lacked mercy. Don't miss, by the way, that Jesus was angry. Jesus was angry. And yet we also understand that Jesus never sinned. Paul tells us that God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, knew no sin to be sin for us. Hebrews tells us that while he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, Jesus never sinned. He was totally apart from sin. My point, he never sinned, but here he was angry, which means there is an anger that is not sinful. We call it righteous indignation. It is being angry. Let me define that for you. It is being angry when God or His causes are offended. Not when you and your causes are offended, but when God or His causes are offended. 
It is why, by the way, God can be a God of wrath and anger and still be a God of perfect love and righteousness. Jesus was angry at their sinful, self-righteous system that kept them from doing good, showing mercy on the Sabbath. So turning his attention from them back to the man, he said, stretch out your hand. Don't, don't miss that. Put yourself in the man's shoes once again. Stretch out your brokenness right here in front of everybody. Let everybody see it. Stretch out that deformity that has plagued you and kept you from being whole perhaps your entire life. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that is what Jesus invites you to do, to give Him your brokenness and allow Him to restore you, to forgive you, to make you whole. The man had a decision to make, to hide his brokenness or allow it to be seen, and in being seen, to be healed. I would say that you have the same choice. Do I allow my brokenness, my sinfulness to be seen, or do, do, do I acknowledge it and allow God to forgive it, to, to heal it, or do I keep it hidden and thereby keep it? The man stretched out his hand as an act of faith. He could have kept it hidden. Stretch out your hand. He, kept, he stretched it out. One of my commentaries said it this way, faith is not a private wager but a public risk that Jesus is worthy of trust when no other hope can be trusted. You see, I believe that if this man had said, no, I will not do that, I will not offer you my brokenness, I don't believe that you can do anything about it, I believe that his hand would have remained withered, it would have remained deformed. As it was with this small act of faith, the hand was fully restored right in front of everyone. Re remember, this was largely a static, this was not a dynamic, this was a static society, meaning that it was not mobile. The crowd in that synagogue had known this man perhaps his entire life. They knew that he was broken. They knew that he was disfigured. They knew that he was deformed, withered. So they knew when he was healed what had happened. They, they saw his hand right before them fully restored. Again, the question, who would have a problem with that? Who would have a problem with that? It brings us to our third point in closing remarks, the conspiracy of the Pharisees in verse 6. Jesus, when Jesus healed the man from a non-life-threatening physical condition, they were irate convinced that he had broken the law. As I said last week, I want to be very clear about this. Jesus had not broken the law. He never sinned. He kept the law perfectly. He was the fulfillment of the law. It was right to do good on the Sabbath. He in their silence, he answered the question by healing and showing mercy. He did not do work and violate the Sabbath law, but he had quite intentionally violated their system. He was confronting them much like he confronts anyone today who thinks that they can reach God apart from him. The truth of the gospel confronts you. You cannot make it on your own. You will come his way or you will not come at all. 
so they went out immediately, Mark's favorite word, but in this case, he means immediately. You can see them as the man stretches out his hand, fully restored. You can see them gathering up their flowing robes, which, by the way, signified their righteousness. They went, they, they I'm no doubt, ran out of the synagogue and began conspiring with the Herodians. Who are the Herodians? They are only mentioned three times in the New Testament, uh, twice here in Mark and once in Matthew. Interesting to note that they are not mentioned outside of the New Testament. No extra biblical literature mentions them. We find that they are always shown as opposing Jesus. We're not exactly sure who they were, but most agree they were likely a political group who supported the Herods of the Herodian dynasty that was ruling Palestine. If that is true, and it likely is true, then these two, Pharisees and Herodians, <laughs> make very strange bedfellows. One, you see, vehemently opposed Roman rule, the other supporting it. But the old saying is true, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they came together when typically they never would to conspire to destroy Jesus, which means from Mark chapter 3 on, Jesus conducts His ministry in the shadow of the cross. They're already conspiring to kill Him. Jesus was opposing the tradition of the elders, thus exposing the Pharisees and their spiritual rule. Not only that, it was widely, widely thought that the Messiah would be a military ruler who would overthrow Rome, so the Herodians would have opposed Jesus as a Messiah as well. He was going to upset their political power given them by Rome. So these two spiritual rulers and political rulers come together to destroy Jesus. A self-righteous leaders, political party, both out to get him. Because those steeped in false systems of religion, those in darkness, will always oppose light. So it, again, it should come as no surprise when they oppose Christianity. No surprise at all. No surprise at all when they oppose us. I guess the question is, what should then our response be? By the way, notice the irony here. I've mentioned it already. They were upset with Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, for restoring a withered hand, but they seem to have no problem at all conspiring on the Sabbath to kill. This is hypocrisy. So later when Jesus calls the, them hypocrites, when He calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, full of dead men's bones on the inside, because of their demonstrations of self-righteousness, they were in fact understandably full of deadness. Their system produced no life. But it was a system. They were hypocrites. It brings me, it brings us to our conclusion. I have several thoughts for us as we close. Here's my first question. With whom do you identify? Are you like the Pharisees, so steeped in actions of self-righteousness that, that while you are quick to see the unrighteousness of others, you would never see it in yourself? Can I tell you today that Jesus came to call sinners, not self-righteous people, into His kingdom? If you this morning think yourself okay, 
If you think compared to everyone else, you're not that bad, you think that you might make it, I just want you to understand Jesus did not come to call you. That's what he said. When you realize that you have nothing to offer, no self-righteousness that would be acceptable to God, then and only then are you in a place to enter his kingdom. Then and only then will you repent. This is the offense of the gospel. Which leads to the second thing. What brokenness do you have? Maybe a brokenness that you desperately try to hide from people that only Jesus can restore. Yes, I do believe that Jesus heals physically today, and maybe He does want to heal you in that way. But more than that, what brokenness and the sinfulness of your life, perhaps the hidden sinfulness of your life, do you have that Jesus wants to restore and forgive? He stands ready to do that if you will stretch out and ask Him to do so. But, it, but again, it requires that you understand that you bring nothing to the table. You have nothing to offer. Your self-righteous system will not do it. Finally, as I recognize that most of you here on a snowy Sunday are believers, followers of Jesus, I would say this. They oppose Jesus for His words of truth and His acts of mercy and His life of righteousness. They will do the same to us. So we should not be surprised. He, he promised us that they would oppose us. And knowing that, and knowing the fleshly desire that we would have to fight back, knowing the fleshly desire that we would have to cling to Amendment 2 more than the cross of Jesus Christ. Peter records this in 1 Peter chapter 2. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile again. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Can I suggest that that is how we respond when threatened and reviled for our faith. We cling to the cross and our suffering Savior. Let's stand for prayer.